Hi, this is ETF.com's Exchange Traded Fridays podcast, a weekly podcast covering developments in the ETF industry. My name is Sumit Roy, and I'm Senior Analyst for ETF.com. This week, I'm talking with Alex Morris, co-founder of the U.S. Benchmark Series and co-portfolio manager of the funds. Alex, welcome to the show. Sumit, thanks for having me. Yeah, so Alex, it's only been a few months since I talked to you last, but things have only gotten crazier in the bond markets. What's your take with everything going on with yields? Is the surge in the 10-year and the 30-year 30 30-year 30 justified? I think it's important to remember that first things first for, for folks who are probably looking at the bond market for the first time in a long time. For some newer folks on the desk or in advisory offices, first time ever, because for a long while it was let's face it, boring. Uh, and there wasn't much return in the, there wasn't much income in the fixed income side of the house. And now we're seeing that. And folks are now really beginning to appreciate when we talk about bond math and duration and convexity, that this is what, what happens. Um, so I think we probably tackle them separately. And it's, we, we should, let's start with the 30 year. I think it's justified. And I think if you look at both the 30 year and the 10 year, you know, the belly of the curve, you're seeing a, or normalization, right? This de-inversion, but in a way slightly different than usual. The, the wrinkle here is the long end of the curve is rising to meet the short end. Normally, when you have an inversion on the short end, as we did, the short end would drop very quickly. And that was a harbinger of recession. So this de- and often you'll hear folks say de-inversion equals recession. That's been true, but I'd argue because the short end dropped quickly not because the long end caught up with what might be a reasonable historical average. Um, you know, looking back, not uh, you know weeks and months, but looking back uh, decades. So, so far, so good there. And, and the 30-year probably needed to be higher than the twos that was trading it a year and a half ago, two years ago. So that part doesn't really seem to be of concern. What I, what I think uh, is not of concern, but more interesting to talk about is indeed the 10. The 10 is just such a global commodity at this point. And we've seen two things happen, maybe three, depending upon how you slice them. The first is the Bank of Japan stopped in interfering in as much in its local 10-year market. And that turned out to be acting as a bit of a peg for the US 10-year, just because of the carry trade that could happen there. When that uh, you know, pressure was taken off the 10-year in Japan, the 10-year in the US went up. And that so far so good, that makes sense. And it was something beyond the control of any one investor and of US regulators to, to in influence in any way, shape or form, or really of the Fed to try to influence. The second item is that thing we just talked about the third, the, um, the, uh, with the 30, the curve is just normalizing in a way we're not used to seeing, but in a way that's appropriate and, and fine. So you're seeing some of that action and that's good. The question yet to be remained to be answered is the 10 year has always been such an attractive security that its supply and demand dynamics have always worked a little differently than the rest of the curve, right? The, there's a lot of folks who participate in the 90 days. It's the risk-free rate. The two years, right? That's a good gauge of inflation. The fives are a good risk trade for folks in the loan and credit market. And the tens have been what the U.S. housing market it was driven off of. And, and also at the same time, proxy for long-term earnings potential in the market. So it will be interesting to see if the 10-year continues to absorb all of that global interest as it always have, 
or if we start to see investors diversify that, some into longer duration, where the, the 20 has always been unloved or has enjoyed much less love, and maybe that will take care of itself. Uh, or if they just start to diversify more broadly across the curve, where they now have more opportunities to play. If you look today uh, on a sort of heat map of duration and interest rate shock, you would find that the seven-year is probably the ideal place to be. And most folks probably haven't thought about a seven-year treasury in a very, very long time. Great color there, Alex. I kind of want to dive a bit deeper because I've been hearing a lot about this debate going on about, you know, whether these yields we're seeing close to 5%, whether in the 10-year or the 30-year, is just a temporary phenomenon that's, you know, a result of the Fed's commitment to hold rates in restricted territory for a while, or whether it's a reflection of longer-term trends like deglobalization you hear about a lot, government deficits. What's your take? I think it can't be just short-term rates. If we accepted that what the Fed was going to do for the next, say, 18 months was indicative of what a security should be priced at for the next 30 years, we would have to acknowledge we've got a massive time mismatch there. I do think the, the curve is accepting that rates will be higher longer, and there's not a necessarily a reason for this inversion. So it is following suit. And if rates were to drop, the curve would probably drop some. But there are some long-term factors that you need to take into consideration. One is what is the percentage of interest that the U.S. is going to pay on its debt? And that's not really a yield equation, right? It's, it's a yield is a byproduct of it. That's a coupon equation. Coupons are going up to provide investors current incentive to take longer-term risk. And ultimately, that does drive yield. But coupon on the 10-year is fixed four times a year right, with the new issue that comes out. It doesn't vary day to day. So you're seeing investors pricing the risk around what that coupon will be worth in, say, eight years from today. And you know, put aside deglobalization and some of the other metrics, I think it is a recognition that we were in an environment where very low to, you know, you'd often hear the streets say free money would exist forever. And this is a recognition that that is not the case. And the fact that the equity markets have still held up, that the economy is still robust, right? These are all features, not, not bugs. But in the long term, that means that there has to be some payoff for funding that and for giving your money today to get it back in a decade or, or three. And that number shouldn't have been zero. It shouldn't have been one. It needed to be some material return to entice investors to take that trade. And that's good. Historically, the 10-year between four and five, it would be considered a normal outcome. And I think we, we fall victim to the last decade and a half where that felt like a very short-term temporary thing. And we would then let the air out of the balloon and everything would go back to normal. But we have to take a step even further back and say, over the course of large super business cycles, what does it look like? And a 10-year above three and a half, above four is just not a bad thing. And a lot of growth, a lot of great innovation happened in a regime with those types of yields and those types of coupons. And that's okay. It's just a slightly different way to think about things. And a lot of traders are going to have to get used to doing a little more math and your asset allocation won't be just by SPY anymore. But it doesn't mean it's bad or scary for the economy. And Alex, you mentioned, you know, investors ultimately want to return when they lend money. 
And, you know, we talk about nominal rates, but of course the return that matters is the, the real return, the real yield um, after accounting for inflation. So if you look at tips right now, they're implying real yields are now above 2%, which is well above where they were in that post-global financial crisis period, and certainly where they were immediately after the pandemic, where they went negative. Um, so, you know, what do you think about that? You know, real yields around 2% right now, um, that's above the 0 to 1% that we saw for the decade after the financial crisis. Is this what we should expect? I think so. I, I think we should expect a positive real yield that's, that is at least uh, material is hard when you're talking about 2% versus, say, some of the growth folks have become accustomed to in, in the equity markets. But a real yield in that space would be appropriate. And it will come down to whether, whether that level should be one, two, three, five, seven, will really come down to how effective the Fed is at beating inflation for the short to long term, right? In that sort of middle term game, like they can't worry about five decades from now, they have to think about the next five years or so. Can they put us on the right course to continue to grow and uh, in a way that is reasonable, not perhaps as unstymied as it was for a long time, but still make government debt attractive in, in the short run? And I think the answer there is yes. And that two number probably will tick up, which is good. I think the Fed will continue to fight inflation this year and next year, which will start to come down more, driving that real yield up a little bit. But we will, we will probably see some bouts of short-term inflation you know, hotspots. And that's just because the dynamics of how people are working, how efficient they can be at work, you know, some of this, I feel like every conversation nowadays, you have to say AI at least once to make sure it's a real conversation. Um, and, and I'm not a big fan of just putting all of our hopes and dreams on an acronym, but there is some efficiency gains that, that will happen as a result of that, that will make this an ongoing battle. And that real yield number at two to three probably feels, feels good. Um, if not, you know, look for occasionally that to be a bit higher as just ebbs and flows in the market happen. And that's not, that shouldn't be a, a scary thing. That should be something that is good because you're getting a real material yield for owning a US security uh, that has you know limited risk, which used to have to go shopping around many, many other places to get that. And it seems like it would be positive for investors to be able to make that investment and expect a real return. That makes a lot of sense. Another topic that a lot of people have been discussing a lot lately, Alex, is the term premium. You have people like Bill Ackman saying the term premium should be 2% for the 30-year bond. I looked at the, the last 50 years, and apparently the yield on the 30-year has averaged about 160 basis points above the Fed funds rate. Um, of course, though, today that term premium is negative with 30-year and the 10-year yielding less than the Fed funds rate. What's your take on that? That's a temporary item. I, I think I wouldn't be the one and don't have enough modeling to tell you if 160 versus 200 and how long that 200 should persist uh, is. But I, I think that historical long run average is, is probably right to low, influenced by just long periods of the curve being flat in a way we never anticipated, uh, particularly for the last 10, 15 years. But that the shape of the curve does and will change over time. 
And what we're seeing now, as we talked about earlier, was the rise of the belly and the long end of the curve to sort of catch up with where the short end is. And that sort of inversion is much less pronounced than it was six months ago. And as rates come down in the short run, the short end of the curve will react appropriately and will come down. And you'll see that much more standard slope, you know, gradual curve slope off to the right. And that will probably be closer to the 200 basis points realm for a while, right? Particularly as rates come down, it should pass through that marker. And then ultimately, I think the long-term rates will, will continue to stay high for the reasons they should be higher than short-term rates. Um, that's not to say they'll be exactly where they are now. They may come down some, but the short end should come down slightly faster. The thing the Fed wants to control though, because they won't inherently try to control the, the term premium, they will want to make sure that the whole curve doesn't collapse and send the economy into a you know, Fed-induced recession. So that's where they're gonna be uh, much more, I, I think this time around, much more concerned. We often say rates go up on the escalator and down on the elevator. And in this case, I think you're gonna see a much more metered stair-step approach on the way down. And that will be how that premium gets reached over time, uh, but will take a little bit of time to get to. It's not gonna happen in two or three months like it used to. It's gonna take perhaps two or three years to get back down to that place. So Alex, I think this is a good time to shift gears a little bit and talk about your firm and your ETFs. Of course, you're known for your single bond ETFs, um, but there, I'm sure there's a lot of people listening right now who might not have heard of these. So you know, for those people, could you just explain what single bond ETFs are? Sure. The good news is, assume it, you just did it for me. They are ETF securities that go out and we specialize in buying the on the run U.S. Treasury bill, note, or bond for each of the major tenors of the yield curve. So when, as we've talked about the 10, uh, the 10-year note, that's U10, U-T-E-N to us. The 30 is U-T-H-Y. Uh, and then U U2, U-T-W-O for the two-year. T-bill is our 90-day version of it. And it goes through T-bill, X-bill, O-bill, U2, U-tray, U5, U7, U10, U20, U30. You can see we're very clever with naming around here. But the idea is pretty simple. If you look at the yield curve, those spots are always reflective of the current on the run. So the latest issue in each of those tenors. And when we think about yields, we think about owning that on the run. That's where liquidity is greatest and the spreads widen somewhat substantially when you start to leave that on the run space. They're the most traded, they're the most liquid. They're the ones that provide the behaviors you hear folks like us talk about in this conversation. Yeah, you know, They're the ones you see quoted on, on TV. We wanted to provide investors access to that experience in a simple way. And that's what the US benchmark series of single treasury ETFs does. Buying treasuries isn't necessarily terribly impossible, but we do it all the time. It's cumbersome rolling them. Like for example, the 10 year is issued four times a year, the two year is issued monthly, so that's 12, and the T bill is issued once a week, so that's 52 times. So if you wanted to replicate what you would see in an institutional portfolio what would be consistent with all of the metrics that we've talked about today, you would need to be constantly trading a portfolio. And that's, of course, time-consuming and difficult and, and can be very expensive. So we, we built the securities to do what we were doing for clients, but in a much more efficient way, and then to allow any investor you know, this direct equitized access to the U.S. yield curve 
which is just such an underpinning of the economy that is very easy to talk about, is often talked about, but not terribly often easily invested in. And we sought to make that easily investable. One question that comes up, up a lot uh, when it comes to single bond ETFs, Alex, is the question of what are all the benefits of holding single bond ETFs when you compare them to, say, more traditional bond ETFs, which own a wider variety of bonds? For instance, you have an ETF which owns the latest 10-year treasury bond. But how does that compare to, say, a competing fund which might own treasuries with maturities between seven and 10 years? What's the difference? So we were, we were always going to own the 10-year. So you never have to sort of guess, or you can guess, and you're going to be right most of the time as to what's in there, uh, depending upon what you guess. You'll be right all the time. Versus, say, the seven, a seven to 10-year bond that will hold perhaps 15 or 20 different bonds. And the first question to think about is, well, why would I diversify my holdings? Right? Diversification usually is trying to achieve a benefit by not holding just one thing. And here, you're not achieving the traditional benefit of issuer diversification, right? When you, you could hold just Apple, but you hold a sector or the entire SPY because you want to own more companies because they have differential outcomes. Here, the issuer is the same. It's the U.S. government. So you're not diversifying away that risk. You have the same risk, which is considered to be none anyway. So then you start asking, well, what else might I diversify into? There's no eight-year bond issued by the government. So every bond that you'll buy in that seven to 10-year maturity range is effectively a 10-year bond that has just been issued for some period of time. So over, you know, as that goes on, there are fewer and fewer people trading those bonds. So as the funds grow or shrink, all investors pay a premium because you have to buy or sell off the pricing that you would expect, which isn't good for all investors uh, or any investor. And on top of that, when you think about the 10-year, you're thinking about that point, right? You look at the curve and you watch that point go up and down. A bond portfolio that holds, say, those 15, 20 bonds will own that entire chunk of the curve. And how that curve sweeps out and the price action you get is a little different than you might expect. And that may not necessarily be a bad thing for a portfolio in some conditions. It just may never be exactly what you'd expect it to be. And given how rigorous and diligent the Treasury Department has been in sticking to its schedules and how liquid the on-the-run treasuries are, you can't actually achieve exactly what you want. You, know, you don't need to go and buy a managed portfolio of bonds to achieve a specific duration or maturity target. The government does that all for you. And it turns out there are a lot of benefits of allowing the government to do that work. All you have to do is go through the process of being good at trading those items to stay in line with that latest issue. And we, we would do that normally for our institutional clients. We were doing that increasingly for our advisory clients and discovered that we couldn't deliver the same experience to them across all account types, platform participations, asset sizing, so we actually started out trying to buy those securities that own multiple treasuries, and they just weren't precise enough. They moved around too frequently. The trade volumes, even when they were really good, didn't have the pricing that reflected what was going on in the cash bond market that day. And you know, we were, like many inventors, begrudging creators of this. Uh, it was necessity that born it into existence. And once we started to really explore how we would create it, we discovered all of these other 
opportunities and advantages that it would have. And we're pleased that the market has, has agreed with us and come to us with other uses we had never thought of. And then innovations that we could do on top of this that we look forward to launching next year. And it, it so far, $3.3 billion in has, has worked. We hope investors continue to respond to it. Uh, and as rates you know, become a bigger part of the conversation, that investors can now directly engage in that and express their views in their accounts, regardless of size or sophistication. Alex, why did it take so long for us to get single bond ETFs? Because everything you're saying makes intuitive sense. People want to buy an ETF that targets the 10-year, not necessarily the 7 to 10-year. Uh, was it a matter, you know, trading costs were too high in the past? You know, that's why they kind of let the bonds stay in the portfolio a while before kicking them out? Why now? You know, I've, I've been asked that a lot over the last year and, a, year, year and a half, and I don't have a great answer. I have some ideas. I think for a long while, it was actually pretty hard to create an ETF. 6011 ruling came out four or five years ago, allowing ETF innovation to really take off, right? And that was the ruling that made it a more blanket exempt of relief for ETF issuers to create funds that were within certain criteria that the SEC agreed that would had stated. And before then, creating an ETF meant you had to follow a passive index. You needed all of these other things, and it was expensive, and every fund needed to have explicit approval from the SEC. And that just makes it harder for smaller issuers who might do new and novel things to participate. So the innovation engine was allowed to operate in a different way because of the SEC's exemptive relief ruling. So I think that was part of it. The second part is the folks who would do this already had well-established treasury businesses that owned funds that had multiple treasuries in them. So it would be difficult for them to say, great news, everything we've been telling you for the last five or 10 years and selling you our products, forget that, something different. And it would probably cannibalize a fair chunk of their own revenue. So those two factors from a commercial standpoint would make it hard for a substantial issuer to take a jump on something new like this. And then the final bit would be, well, what about someone like, like us coming in? I think you needed that third part to come into play, which is rates needed to be materially interesting again for folks to have any interest in even talking about them, much less looking at your product and finally putting it in a portfolio. So we were in that right spot of we didn't have an installed base uh, that was going to be cannibalized. We, we didn't have an ETF business at all that this would put in jeopardy. This was something out of necessity we needed to do. And the ETF wrapper was the right one for a handful of reasons. And great. Followed by, we now had the ability to generate this product relatively quickly to answer a current market condition. And then we did it during a time when that market condition existed and looked likely to persist for the foreseeable future. And those three things coming together allows some of the US benchmark series to come into to being and to be accepted. I don't know if it would have worked without any one of those. There may be 17 other factors that I haven't thought about or we haven't discussed that are actually far more important than any one of these. But on the whole, as I look back, I think those are the three things that we, we needed and the three things we really think about as we look at new products that we will launch the very end of this year and beginning of next year as we take on other parts of the fixed income and credit spaces that we think also need a little more innovation. If you look at ETFs today, 70% are equity ETFs, 20% are fixed income and 10 are in commodities, options, other things. 
But the fixed income market is much, much bigger than that 20% represents. And there hasn't been a tremendous amount of innovation or frankly interest in fixed income from the broad markets in a long, long time. We think that's ready for change and we wanna be one of those change agents to help folks uh, participate in the fixed income marketplace meaningfully and more in a more engaged manner over the coming years. So Alex, when you talk to investors, what are they telling you about these ETFs? I mean, I look at the numbers and the flows and it's just been up and to the right. They've been growing month after month. So they must be really resonating with investors, right? We think so. We get a lot of really engaged investors, both retail and institutional, who reach out. I have been pleasantly surprised at the number of people who ring up who have other innovative ideas on how to deploy these in portfolios that, frankly, we had never thought of, uh, some of which we've now you know, helped others implement as well. I think there are a lot of folks in particular who, are in, who worked in some amount of a trading capacity at a small institution or a large one who used to roll treasuries. And it was a thing that had to be done you know, every Tuesday, as an example. And you never got promoted for doing it well because you could just do it well enough, but you could make a very large mistake uh, that made it very hard to show up to work on Wednesday. So many folks who've been in the mechanical business of doing this are happy to see that we can do this at scale and we pass through the benefit of that scale to them. Folks who have never really understood how to invest in the treasury market are excited that now they can buy a bond and understand it. And it's because of the way the ETF is priced, they, they get this is what's going on and they can correlate that to the red or green arrows they see on TV. And we're thrilled that folks like that. And we think that's why a lot of this is, is caught on. And then from a practical standpoint, it's easier to just use. Bonds have different tax treatments. You have different pricing, accrued income, all sorts of other things. This eliminates that. So it's much easier to look at your portfolio that probably has a number of other ETFs and a handful of single security you know, equities. It all looks the same. The numbers are the same. You can rebalance it all in the same trade ticket. Life just becomes much easier. And you no longer have you know, this separation of, oh, well, that's my cash management or that's my treasury. So that's my, my bond account. And then I have my other account I look at every day over here. We were able to bring those together in a very meaningful way. And I think that's what has, investors have really resonated with. And we hope investors, advisors, and institutions uh, continue to do so. And, and we're here to help to make sure that they can continue to enjoy those benefits. Alex, I recently got a chance to speak with Ryan Charles, uh, who works with, uh, who is a principal at Kelly Hunt and Charles. And he helped you submit paperwork uh, to offer a mutual fund share class for your ETFs. So that's obviously really interesting. Usually we hear about mutual fund managers trying to break into ETFs. Here you are, an ETF issuer trying to break into mutual funds. Can you tell us why you're doing it and you know what kind of progress has been made on that front? Sure. Yeah, this, uh, we are swimming against uh, the current, it seems here. Um, but Ryan and his partner, Aisha, have been great partners and collaborators in this process uh, for us and really helped us finalize the idea of, what, of going after the mutual fund share class. And the reason why we wanted to do it is necessity. Again, we've had folks come and approach us and say, could you launch a mutual fund that replicates T-bill? I want to use you in a 401k program. And our first answer was, well, just use T-bill in your 401k program or U10. But it turns out only about four tenths of a percent of 401k programs accept ETFs in them. 
And we set out to try to do it ourselves on our own program. And it was hard. It took weeks and months of working with a record keeper to get it approved. And then individual participants spent a week and a half or two weeks each trying to get accounts open. And then when you did, you were limited in what you could trade and how you could trade it. And it felt like that wasn't the, the solution. We also knew, particularly when you trade just one security, if we had a second fund, we would lose a, a large economy of scale, particularly as that fund ramped up in speed. And any small deviation between the two would be immediately noticeable and amplified. And that didn't feel like the right outcome for investors. So that's when we got to thinking about what others had been doing and trying to offer ETF share classes. Well, well, why were they doing that? Well, many of them are doing that because they have large established mutual fund businesses and they don't want to replicate the fund. Some of them, some folks have actually done that and been very successful at that, but some have said, well, why would we want to do that? Some have some tax interest in the multi-share class structure. For us, it's we wanted to deliver the same high quality, high efficiency experience without any other wrapper or structure in the way from us doing that. And given the, the concerns the SEC has noted about multiple share class structures, the fact that we were trading just treasuries actually seemed to address many of them and in isolation of the portfolio effects that would happen for someone, say, trading a 50 stock actively managed portfolio. The treasuries by their nature are cash equivalents. Uh, we can do cash settled trades same day to meet flow demands. So we don't have to hold on to additional amounts of cash to make that work. And we're trading government securities. So the some of the concerns that would happen if we were trading high yield you know, international debt just naturally go away. So there was this opportunity for us to meet investor demand where it wanted us, right? In a structure that could be used in a retirement account. And obviously government bonds should be or are very likely a large component of many, many retirements accounts for, for good reason. But we wouldn't have to create new structures that might be an inferior experience. And we didn't have to sacrifice the economies of scale of growing the strategy by now dividing those efforts over multiple funds, multiple accounts, multiple trading counterparties, so on and so forth. And so this idea came up and rather like building the US benchmark single treasury series, we had that moment of, huh, yet again, the market seems to be going one direction and we wanna go the other. Uh, and we we thought about it long and hard and worked with Ryan and Aisha and, and they came up with a great plan with us that we think will be successful. We've not had any, further contact uh, with the SEC on the matter yet. Um, they certainly should process this information and are taking in many other applications you know, to, to convert uh, ETFs or to add ETF share classes. So we, we appreciate that when, our turn, when it's our turn, we're there and we're very interested in having a meaningful conversation about why we think this is good for investors. Um, and we're looking forward to that. Um, and we hope that, that, that our day comes in, in short order, but appreciate that there are a lot of things on the SEC's plate. And uh, when the time is right, we will be waiting to answer. You certainly seem to be zigging while others are zagging, Alex. Really excited to see what comes of that. Um, but how about future products, Alex? You, you have a really nice suite of single bond treasury ETFs. You've been really focused on treasuries, but what other types of single bond ETFs or even you know, non-single bond ETFs could we see from you in the future? 
Well, so we already launched an actively managed credit portfolio that trades under XFIX or XFIX. It was uh, the byproduct of uh, one of our portfolio managers, my, my co-architect of the strategy, Pete Baden, who had been running this strategy for 12 years plus, five stars across the board. And our problem was we couldn't get it to enough investors fast enough in its current format. The SMA is great, but the ETF is much more accessible. So we launched an ETF based on that strategy, Perry Passu mapping of it. And uh, later this year, you'll start to see us dip our toes into more innovative ways to access other parts of the ag. You know, broadly speaking, we'll take a look at credit, at mortgages, um, you know, at munis later on. And the idea there is we won't be able to offer a single bond yeah, ETF, just the issuer requirements won't allow us to do that. But that may not be the right answer. We think there are other ways to approach how either the ag or some of its you know component constituent indices have been attacked, and there's some innovation that can be done there. And there certainly is a lot of assets that have followed this. And for the same reasons that the single bond ETFs had the opportunity to grow, we think those innovations have market potential. Uh, and more importantly, some of them are being built because folks have come to us and asked us if we would do it or why hasn't someone done this? And when we see those ideas, you know, we, we take them in, we process them. Some of them are very consistent with our own product development pipeline. Uh, and some of them are also consistent with SMA or other institutional strategies we're running today that now with you know, coupons likely to go up, with credit interesting again, with munis providing different benefits, there's an opportunity to really innovate in the ETF fixed income space. And we hope that early success in the benchmark and continued success will allow us the opportunity to talk to investors about what that next round of innovation should be. And we expect lots of others will do the same thing and, and we'll be part of an ecosystem of delivering better, longer term solutions for fixed income to all investors. Fantastic. Well, excited to see what the future holds for you, Alex. You know, I really appreciate you taking the time to share your insights with us. This was a great discussion. Sumit, I appreciate it. Thanks so much. Listeners, I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can find this and all other Exchange Traded Fridays episodes on ETF.com or on any major podcast platform. See you next week.